The following podcast contains spoilers and rude words. Mate, did we watch a thing this week? Yeah, we did. Hey, thanks for joining us. Welcome to We Watched a Thing for Another Week. Uh, I'm Topher, he's Billy. Nice little casual hey there, mate. I do it like I'm Swedish. Hey, hey. <laughs> Very happy to be here this week to my basking in glory from my Oscar tipping win where I got to pick a movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I thought that Beth was meant to be here for this too, but she somehow just weaseled her way out of it, did she? Yeah, she kind of just was like, meh, nah. <laughs> I mean, in her defence, we decided we were going to do this this week very, very late because we were going to do Downhill and then both of us were like, oh, really? I don't know. <laughs> That's basically how it went. This is a fairly well-known film, um, won a couple of Oscars. Yeah. You haven't seen it. I hadn't seen it. I hadn't. And uh, I watched it today. Did you have an interest at the time and it just slipped through or was it just not really on your radar? Look, it's rough. You know, I'm trying to think back to 2007. I also, I haven't seen, um, what was, blood, killing, blood, die. uh, (laughs) Uh, There will be blood. There will be blood. (laughs) Paul Thomas Anderson's Uh, Many Would Say Masterpiece. I haven't seen that either from the same year. I know there's a lot of talk about which one of these two is actually better. They're kind of very competitive films with each other is my understanding of the situation. Um, Haven't seen either of them. I'm trying to think back to 2007 to think what I was doing. You know, fun fact, I think I was actually working in a cinema at the time. But but I was working three jobs at the time, all of which could have led me to watch this movie because I was working in a video store, a cinema and a television station. (laughs) Um, But I was pretty busy in 2007, I think. So, yeah, I just didn't get to it. I'm pretty sure I did have interest. um, And then I just missed it. And then I just kept on missing it. I don't know why. (laughs) This is one of those stunningly rare occurrences where- your favourite film of the year wins Best Picture. I loved the shit out of this film when I first saw it. Um, I love There Will Be Blood. Personally, I like this one more, Okay, um, which is fine. You can yep. like more than one thing. Uh, is it your favourite Coen Brothers film? It, in fact, is. Okay. All right. I would have- I can. I can almost guarantee that I bought the DVD, like, the day it came out. I was- I was just highly, highly into this film. And as many people got recently with Parasite, uh, what a joy it is when your favourite film of the year, like a film that you not only is your favourite film of the year, but that you also think is the best film of the year, wins Best Picture. It is it happens, fun, yeah. It, like, it might happen once a decade, but it probably won't for you. Um, it was a thrill. Yeah. It was a thrill. I can, I can imagine. So what's it about, Billy? Well, No Country for Old Men is a 2007 American neo-Western crime thriller film written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, and it's based on Cormac McCarthy's 2005 novel of the same name. It stars Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem, and Josh Brolin, and it's, it's about a lot of things, really. Uh, I'd say it's about life. Um, mm, very deep. Yeah. Follows three characters, a, you know, small town city sheriff who's who's tracking- um, a hitman who is tracking a guy who has found some cash. How does that sound? That's That works for me. Okay. This is a rarity that you get 
like sometimes you get the good guy and the bad guy together. Um, Heat is maybe the most obvious example of that. It's re- in this film you've got a bad guy, you've got the sheriff who's a good guy, and then you've got Moss played by Brolin, who's not a good guy or a bad guy. He's just a guy. Yeah, and for the majority of the film, he is the protagonist, clearly. For the, for the first hour and a half of the film, he's the guy you're following and, and, I guess, rooting for. Yeah, I think it was a bit of a joke that Tommy Lee Jones was put up for best lead actor for this film by the studio. That's that's not right. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's one of those interesting things where how do you define the lead actor? Is it just the person who has the most screen time? Because I would argue, and I'm sh- I mean, knowing that you love this film, I'm sure that you'll argue this too, that um, I feel like the film is from his perspective in a lot of ways. And he is certainly where the themes come through. He's the only character who grows uh, with the progress of the film, unlike Moss doesn't really. Um, I mean, do you agree with that? Thematically, I do agree with what you've said there. I just find it hard, like, of the three, Tommy Lee Jones has the least screen time of the three, so putting him up for lead is a bit of a stretch, I think. Yeah, he is my favourite of the three performances, though. Um, I thought that Tommy Lee Jones was incredible in this film. He is the standout star for me. I know there's a lot of talk about Javier Bardem, and I do think that he's extremely strong, but for me, Tommy Lee Jones... Even just his opening narration of the film is, for me, one of the strongest parts. I think he's really, really good. Yeah, so, like, Tommy Lee Jones is from Western Texas. He's from this part of the world. And it is one of those roles where, having seen this person in it, it is so hard to imagine the casting going any other way. This time around, I I was interested to see how far into the film we get before, with the exception of voiceover, when do we meet Tom Bell? It's 26 minutes into the film. It is quite a chunk for our the guy that's notionally the good guy. Yeah. You wouldn't really say that the film has a hero in the traditional sense, but it is a move that it's kind of a weird move that you could see not working at all, but it's fine. Yeah, it's funny. In some ways, I would say that Moss is the hero of the film yeah. for the majority of it. He's not He's not a terrible guy. Um, Certainly Even, not. you know, the fact- What really sets off the chain of events is the fact that he goes back to give this guy water. Because- Exactly. Because he feels guilty. He, he has a conscience. He knows right and wrong. And at the end of the day, he wants to do right. He just also wants $2.4 million, as yeah. don't we all? Like, you know- If I stumbled across a suitcase with that much money in it, I think I'd take it too. The only exception is, and I don't understand, if you have $2.4 million and you figure out pretty quickly that people are after you for it, why don't you just hop on a plane is my question. Get the fuck out of Dodge. For, For the story to work, he has to go back to that guy that he feels bad for. Yeah. But- all it it is also the one of the very few bits of the film where I'm just like Nah, don't buy it. You don't buy it? I don't buy Moss going back for that guy. Really? Why not? Well, at this point, it's now been, like, it's been more than 12. It's almost, by the time he gets back out there, it's just about dawn. Yeah. So, the entire night's gone by. This guy's dead. I I know, but I think 
if anyone with a true conscience, and this is probably the part where you're struggling to understand it, because I know that you don't care about the human race. Uh, more like Anton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like I feel like you would, even if anything, just just to see if he was still alive for your own conscience, knowing. I I don't know. I think I would. It's a very bad move. From to be honest, if it was me, I probably the only difference would be that I would have gone back with the water sooner. Um, I I would have just been like, I'll be back in an hour or something, and I and I would have done that. Yeah, I'm not going back into a crime scene to put spread more of my DNA around the place. Not happening. Would you would you alert the police to the crime scene, or would you just trust that they'd stumble upon it? Like actually, you- that I suspect that's what I'd do. Yeah, I'd call the cops. That's probably what I would do. I would take the money first, and then I would call the cops anonymously. But especially if there was someone alive, I would call the cops. I think, but I would still take the money. <laughs> you mentioned like right from his his opening voiceover. I love the and I haven't read the book. Um, I imagine this is lifted pretty directly from it. Not necessarily the lines he's saying, but the style of his speaking, where it's such a specific use of English that that Tom Bell uses mm. and it's even the way that they write that opening voiceover it's really familiar the way that he's, he's like yada 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 something about jim that's the younger jim the kind of thing that you would say in a conversation but that you never put in voiceover which is why it's a really smart voiceover i think because it's not just it's not narration if that makes sense. He's not talking, I don't think, to us, the audience. It feels more informal than that. It's almost like you can imagine this is a conversation he's having with his cousin Ellis, you know, like it's it's very informal. You also mentioned Javier Bardem, who, of course, did win an Oscar for this film. Um, I personally think it's the best screen villain since Silence of the Lambs. Um, this guy, Anton Chigurh, is barely registers as human. There was a group of psychiatrists who named him the most clinically accurate psychopath in film. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, on the one hand, he's, like, apparently quite believable. On the other hand, like, he's almost like the angel of death just roaming through this film. There's nothing- there's just nothing there behind Bardem's eyes in this film. He's so incredible. And one thing that I love that they do in the direction of the film is that early on- when we meet this guy, we, when when Tom Bell's narration is still going on, is that the Coens employ an incredible control of the camera. That scene where he chokes the cop. Oh, uh, yeah. Which you could so easily imagine that being done handheld and shot in a really kind of helter-skelter way to to get across the the force and violence of it. But the camera barely moves. Yeah. Throughout that shot, because which is a great reflection of the fact that there's just nothing going on with this guy. Yeah. As he goes about just horrifically killing people. Yeah. And then and then they have one of like just one of my favorite shots of the decade when the camera pulls out and the shoe marks on the floor. Mm. Like in amongst something that's already been so grisly, like that's the thing for me. Yeah. That when I first saw the film, I was like, oh, Yuck. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm, I'm, I'll just come right out. I loved this film as well. I think it is extremely well put together. I think that if you were to ask what is the best example of what a brilliant cinematographer Roger Deakins is, 
I think this is the film because, as you've said, it's it's very understated. There's lots of static shots, very little movement, but it's all done very, very purposeful and intentional, and it still looks stunning. Just the landscape shots of this film. You know, when people refer to this as a Western, you can see where that's coming from just in the fact that the landscape is kind of a character. Um, and Roger Deakins, I think, nails that so well. And Deakins makes a choice with a lot of those landscape shots, which from memory, it runs against what he's done for most of his career and indeed just what most directors of photography would do, which is that a lot of those landscapes are front lit. The sun is behind the camera and is just flooding these landscapes with light, which the reason that generally doesn't happen is that you lose shading and depth yeah. and it flattens it out. What it also does in flattening out the image like that is that it makes it more bleak. And even though a kind of boring, ordinary Roger Deakins shot almost can't help but be amazing, he he, he absolutely does not lean into anything resembling prettiness with a lot of those wide establishing shots. They are just flat and bleak AF. I think what the Coens do with their writing as well is really, really smart. I would say that this is largely a character-driven film. Like, yes, there's a there's a plot, obviously. It's not, it's not character-driven to the extent that Inside Lewin Davis is, for example. Um, but it's- it's very much about following these three men, or, or really two men. I, Anton, as you say, there's almost nothing human about him. But the Coens are really smart in the way that, unlike some other filmmakers, they just put complete faith in the audience. Nothing is spoon-fed. Every You kind of have to put two and two together for the majority of the film. And it's really smart the way it kind of just drip feeds these little bits of information about the characters to you, even just through their actions, not so much what they say. You know, we find out quite late in the film that Moss was in Nam and is a veteran. And by that point, it makes total sense. It's like, yeah, we've seen through his actions that he's this kind of always prepared. He's willing to go into danger. It just kind of makes sense. The brilliance of Javier Bardem checking his shoes for blood at the end because he likes them to be neat. And we've seen that earlier. Mm. I That is just some absolute brilliant filmmaking in that scene that we don't need to see it on screen. What we've seen enough. And at that point in the film, we're very much with Tommy Lee Jones. And he's kind of now trailing behind and missing all these big events. And so it's kind of fitting that we as the audience are missing them as well. But- there's enough there that we know what happened. With what you were saying with trusting the audience, um, when Moss first comes across the site of the shootout and he's checking things out, th- there's a lot of restraint there in not showing a heap of gore or whatever. It's just kind of left to us that, like, all right, you, you guys know what happened here, right? That was kind of in my mind when there's then a shot of an interior of a car of a guy kind of all bloodied up. And I was like, oh, okay, that's weird. I, didn't, I don't actually feel like that shot's needed. The next shot then is shot from inside the car and Moss is framed in the doorway and it's his kind of lack of reaction to what he's seeing. Yeah. And so that's the payoff, I think, to showing the gore inside the car 
is that it's like you were saying with when by the time we fi- find out that he is a veteran, it's not a shock to us because there's been enough things to clue us into it. And I think that's one of those really early things, his complete lack of reaction to death when most of us would flip the fuck out if that scene greeted us. Absolutely. And even just in that scene, you can see his- you know, his skill set and stuff. When he goes looking for the last man standing, just because in his head he knows that, okay, if there's money here, that's where it'll be. Which even that in itself is just feeding you this little information about who this guy is and what his character is. And he starts looking for him and he's like, okay, he'd be in the shade. Like, mm. he he knows things. <laughs> like, And so, it's really smart. We don't need him to do a voiceover about, you know, what his background is or anything. We don't know- from the start of the film, we don't know the background of any of these three men, and it, we just kind of discover them as the film allows us to, and it's really, really nice. It's it's funny now to think back to the fact that when this film came out, Josh Brolin wasn't a name. I was trying to work that out because I'm not going to- I didn't recognise him until- I was like, I know Josh Brolin is in this film, but- I actually don't know who he is, and I, I I honestly had to look up that he was Moss. You were like, where's, where's this kid from the Goonies? I can't pick him. <laughs> well, because when I think of Brolin, I'm picturing Sicario, Thanos. Um, was he Cable in Deadpool? Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, he's very, very large, and I don't, the moustache was throwing me off. I just, I couldn't recognise him. It's a far less showy- Role just like the way it's written, it it just is a less showy role. Certainly than what Javier Bardem gets to do, um, and I think maybe Brolin's contribution to the film is undersold because he's more than anyone else. He's our vehicle into the movie, yeah. And as quite often happens with those kind of characters, they are just more like obviously normal. Like I said, if I was greeted with that body, I'd flip the fuck out. But Brolin, as I said at the beginning, he's not the good guy or the bad guy. He's just the guy. Yeah. And plays him, plays Moss absolutely beautifully, I think, um, as does Kelly MacDonald. Yes. As his, as his wife. Um, her name's just left. It's a two-barrel two, it's a two name. It's like it Betty is. Jean or Betty it's Sue. Something or, like that. It's something Jean. It's Carla Jean. Jean Betty, Carla Jean. There you go. She's so good. Do you know that because she, she kept the accent- for the entire shoot. And then, like, you know, they call cut for the last time. Out comes Glaswegian Kelly MacDonald. <laughs> and, like, yeah. half the crew was like, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> yeah. She's so good. She really is fantastic. Just nails every scene she's in. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny. It's a film that I think in a lot of other filmmakers' hands could wind up being far too long. Like, I think it's- it, it does a really good job of keeping pace. And it's funny, I feel like a lot of people might call this movie slow, but I actually think it does a lot with the time that it has. And the fact that it keeps under two hours is kind of amazing to me. I feel like that's part of the reason I hadn't watched it was just, you know, knowing what the film was and its style and everything. I think I was expecting, you know, a two and a half hour plus film, but I think it cracks through at a pretty good pace. Yeah, particularly for a film with three threads that you're- Well, I mean, one thread, but three characters that you're following. Yeah. To keep it to a two-hour film, it could easily sprawl out longer than that. It's a pretty taut film. It is. It really is. Another thing I love, the complete lack of score. 
sparse, isn't it? Now, this is this has come up a lot that there's no score. That's not actually true. It's just it's very rare, and when it's there, it's very low. Yeah. Okay. Because it is very sparse, and I think that does a great job of setting the space. And as I said, that kind of feeling that the the countryside is a character, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that for the majority of the film, the sounds you do hear are just, you know, natural live sound. And it, it really does add to that feeling of vastness. And yeah, I think it's really clever. Reasonably earlier. It's actually, this scene sneaks up on me as being earlier in the film than I often remember it. And it it might be my single favourite scene of any film from that last decade. And that is Anton and the old gas station attendant. Oh, that is such great filmmaking. (laughs) I was, the first time I saw this film in the cinema, I was absolutely terrified for this guy. Yeah. Like, I I was shaken watching that scene. What's so great about it is that he doesn't understand what's, Happening towards the end, you can see he's starting to maybe clock that something isn't right. That's it. He's like something's off. But, but he 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 literally does not. Know. He's not. He's not asking over and over again. What are the odds? He's not asking that for confirmation that it's his life. I don't think his brain has even gone there. He literally doesn't know what stakes are on the line. And it's again a great piece of characterization for Anton that just shows you like the kind what his brain goes through because he's very happy to kill people but the coin said no (laughs) yeah and that's it and that's of course the first time we see the coin up until that point like the angel of death just if you come into contact with anton you die yeah and so i was just like well he's gonna kill i was convinced i was like he's gonna kill this this sweet old man yeah this is gonna be fucking horrific and again it's a scene that's shot incredibly like, almost boringly. So basic. It, it's like a scene from Clerks. An over-the-shoulder shot and an over-the-shoulder shot for the most part. Just, like, this complete lack of flash, which sometimes you're watching a movie and you're like, oh, come on, this seems like a rampant lack of imagination on the part of the director. When it comes to Anton, it's so bang on the right thing to do. He is just villainous. It's not one of those villains where you could kind of see his point of view. He is just a bad guy and he has been hired to do this, but, you know, he does it because it like, what else would Anton be doing if he wasn't a hitman? Like, <laughs> That's a great question. What else would this guy be doing? And I love that we don't get any backstory of his. We don't know if if he was a vet. We don't know what his childhood was like. This is just, this is Anton now and this is what you get. And I really love that. The line that Woody Harrelson's character has about, I would describe him as not having a sense of humour. I'm pretty sure that's the only description of the character in the book. Yeah. There's like nothing physical about him in the book as far as I understand it. Like in the film, you just get nothing from this guy. Yeah. Another just just incredible bit part player in the film is the manager of the Desert Air Caravan Park, where yeah. Moss lives. Yeah. The one character in the entire film that Anton comes up against and is like, fuck, what? Yeah. <laughs> she is just amazing. I love her. What an absolute boss. It's a pretty tight turnaround from novel to film here. 
Um, yeah. I can't I can't think of a quicker adaptation, I think, 2005 to 2007. And did you know that McCarthy had actually written this as a screenplay first before he I wrote it as a book? I did not know that. So, he'd written it as a screenplay and then had trouble um, selling it, so wrote it as a book instead. I wonder how he feels- yeah, He must feel kind of bad that the Coens made this brilliant movie when he couldn't sell his screenplay. <laughs> Good thing the film does is just- conveying details, whether it's just us getting an understanding of Anton's whole gas bottle thing or the frequency and the repetition of blowing out the locks with it. So then when we get that fucking great scene where Moss has realised that he's being tracked and he's in his room and Anton arrives and turns the light out and then the camera goes to the door and because of what we've seen before, we're like, oh, shit. Yeah. That's <laughs> a great little bit of dramatic tension there where Moss does not know what's coming for him. And we're like, fuck, just get out the window, Moss. Yeah, the film is tense. It would be up there, I'd say, with Sicario for me in terms of that kind of tense thriller feeling you get. And another great thing that comes of just the details in the film, like when, uh, when Anton has killed Woody Harrelson's character and just crosses his legs- to avoid getting blood on his shoes, yeah, which then just feeds into one of the final shots of the film, when as he leaves Carla Jean, and it is, and you think it's going to be kind of up to you, yeah, of did he kill her? Did he not? How did that? Did did the coin toss happen? It's going to be choose your own adventure, and if I want, I can just decide that Kelly McDonald is fine because that's what I want to happen in life. I want Kelly McDonald to be fine. And then he checks his shoe and you're like, ah, oh, fuck. It, it's a brilliant decision to not show us that. Um, I th- and, and even earlier, you know, to not show us Moss's final moments either. Yeah, maybe the boldest decision in the entire film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I'm sure that there are people out there who hate those choices. That, But, you know, it's as you say, it's not the kind of choose your own adventure thing. It's very clear what happened. And I love the decision to not show us because, again, by that point in the film, we're being carried by Tommy Lee Jones and he's missing this stuff. He's Mm. stumbling in on it. He's always one step behind. It's funny because for the first half of the film, you're always one step ahead of Anton with Moss. And then at a certain point, you, you flip that switch and you're behind and you're struggling to catch up. And, you know, that's what the whole film is about. So, I think it's genius to not show us what happens in those moments. Yeah, with like with the whole feeling of inevitability that a lot of the characters are experiencing, the fact that, yeah, Moss just died because that's what was always going to happen. Yeah, and it wasn't even Anton who did it, which I think is one of the boldest choices. That's it. The villain didn't get him. Yeah. He just died because that's what was going to happen. That's what was going to happen. He was doing bad things and making bad choices and trying to take money that wasn't his. <laughs> and so someone was going to get him. Do you want a couple of um, dodgy internet research? Yeah. This may have come up on the show before. I can't remember. But it's a f- this, is a, this is a little fact that Woody Harrelson doesn't exactly advertise because I don't think he's thrilled that it is a fact. Um, his dad was a hitman in Texas. I did know that. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Like Kelly McDonald in this film, just comes off the bench a few times and kills it. Yeah, he's, only in, yeah. he's in three scenes. Yeah, okay. That's yeah, so it. There's, there's, there's a scene where Anton offs him. There's the hospital and there's the one 
where he gets hired. Where you meet him. Yeah. With yep. Stephen Root. Again, yep. Stephen Root. Barely on screen and you're just like, wow, you could, you just couldn't be better. <laughs> I, I love Stephen Root as well. I All, all I see is Milton from Office Space. But <laughs> I suspect when I was watching it, I was like, I know where Billy's going with this. <laughs> Office Space is one of the greatest comedies of the last 50 years. It's so fucking good and he's great in it. <laughs> and just another cool little detail that they slip into that that scene. It works on two levels when Woody Harrelson counts the floors and he's like, there's one missing. And it tells us a bit about Woody Harrelson's character. And then with Stephen Root's reaction to it, it tells us a bit about this organisation and just how much power there probably is here. So this film and There Will Be Blood were kind of tied together for a long time. And they were filming while this film was on location in Texas. They were filming basically next door. Yeah, right. There will be blood. There was one scene for No Country for Old Men, which had to be delayed by a day because Paul Thomas Anderson was doing a. Uh, a t- it wasn't even. It wasn't even a shoot for the film. It was a test shot, which meant that a bunch of smoke went up behind a hill. I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> PTA's fucked us here. <laughs> Everyone go to the pub. <laughs> um. In the in the tradition of Cohen films linking together, the money case in this movie is the same money case as in Fargo. Right. Yeah, I haven't seen either this or uh, There Will Be Blood, but it, it was funny because I clearly had the two mixed up. I kept waiting for the milkshake scene <laughs> just because, uh, you know, I know about the milkshake scene, but I kept waiting for it until right at the end I'm like- where was that? And I had to Google to find out that it was in There Will Be Blood, not this. <laughs> Anton Chigurh doing the milkshake scene would be amazing. That's what I was expecting. I was waiting for Javier Bardem to, I drink your milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> I drink it up. <laughs> it's a tough one between best villain, actually, because Daniel Plainview is absolutely the villain of There Will Be Blood. He just happens to also be the main character. Yeah, that's a very good film. You should see it. Maybe one day. Make it a throwback, then I'll watch it. (laughs) Well, the next throwback is mine still, so I might just. This is a bonus for me. Um, Like, you've mentioned Sicario a couple of times, and one thing I thought watching No Country this time round is without this film, and maybe this is placing too much on it, but without this film, do we get Tyler Sheridan's career as it currently stands? I still think, I mean, the Coens are responsible for so much. I don't think we'd have Martin McDonough without them either. Um, But no, I I don't think we get Tyler Sheridan's career as it stands now because I don't think Sicario is a film that would be made were it not for the success of films like this. Because it is a genre which, I mean, you think about it, like how do you even define the genre of this film? I guess at its base you call it a thriller, which, okay, that works, but it's a lot more than that. It's a very slow burn, as is Sicario for most of the film. It's more that kind of tension-driven. It's not the kind of thing I think you could easily sell to a studio. So, yeah, without the success of the Cohen and films like this, I don't think you get Sicario. And you also don't get Josh Brolin in Sicario because the only reason he did Sicario is because- Roger Deakins called him up and was like, I don't care if you're tired from that stupid fucking Everest movie you did. You need to come and do this fucking job. 
Yeah, right. And Josh Boland was like, well, fuck, if Roger Deakins is telling me to come and do this, <laughs> I guess I'm going to come and do it. <laughs> also, don't see Everest. It's a very bad film. <laughs> okay, it's not very bad. You just, you want to have your brain well and truly unengaged. <laughs> All right. So, one of your favorite movies ever, and, and I believe at the start of the episode, you said your favorite Coen Brothers movie. What are you scoring it? Yeah, it was like, it's a, it's almost a, an Anton Chigurh coin toss between this and Fargo. Mm. But I think I do land on on this. It's If I don't think it's the best film of the 21st century, I do think it's probably my favourite. Yeah. Um, I really do just love the shit out of this movie. I'm only a 9 out of 10. Just, I don't know. It's just one of those things. Just one of those things where I'm like, Am I willing to give this the same score as Lawrence of Arabia? It's just one of those things where I'm like, no, you can have a nine. Okay. Um, I'm a nine on this, uh, but this is not my favorite Coen Brothers. Mine is Fargo. I I still think Steve Buscemi, um, you know, Marge Gunderson. I just think there's so many great things about that movie that really, really make it work for me. Like the name Marge Gunderson. Yeah, I know. Such a great name. Um, that, that for me is a 10. This is a nine. I loved it a lot though. I'm really glad I watched it and I would definitely rewatch it. So yeah. Thank you for introducing me to it. Finally. (laughs) We mentioned it last week, but I think, um, I think next week our episode on the Contrarians podcast is going up where we talk about the genius film that is Street Fighter from 1994. Mm. Um, also, we totally forgot to plug, but you were on Movie Reviews in 20 Qs recently talking about Parasite, were you not? That is true. That was, um, it, was probably, it was probably a month ago, but if, if anyone missed that, definitely worth checking out because, like, I'm on it. I wouldn't listen to their show otherwise. Um, Clearly. Because, you know, Sam's- Sam. Not a, not a great show, Movie Reviews in 20 Qs, that show where they review a movie by asking 20 weird and wonderful questions about it. It's not, it's not you know, I wouldn't bother unless Topher's on it. Delightful as it is. Yeah, I mean- okay. why, why would you? Okay, I, I do like that show, but definitely check it out because Topher's on it. <laughs> um, and I mean, we're getting way back now, but while, while we're plugging stuff, I was also on So I Married a Movie Geek drafting the best films of 2005, and I failed miserably. I- got 9% of the vote or something like that. So, I mean, check that out if you want to hear why I um why I suck at what movies I enjoy, I guess. Which listeners of the show are already I mean, they know. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Okay. And also coming up on our Patreon this week, we're starting a new series on what else we've been watching lately. So if you want to hear us talk about all those movies that you haven't heard us talk about, um, brilliant films like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, A Hidden Life, or trash films like Sonic and Fantasy Island and Birds (laughs) of Prey, um, you can do that at our Patreon page as well. So, And what are we getting to next week, buddy? Next week, um, we're keeping it highbrow. <laughs> yes, Next we are. week, aren't we? <laughs> yes. Because there's a new Vin Diesel film, <laughs> which <laughs> looks incredible. A Vin Diesel superhero film. <laughs> and by looks incredible, I mean I've only seen the poster and it looks incredible. <laughs> we should really try line it up so that we can go together for this one. I think that, you know, we did that for Hobbs and Shaw and it was a lot of fun. I think we should really try get get down to Dendy together for this one. <laughs> Since it will be on both of our top fives, 
come the end of the year. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if it's showing in like the gold class, the premium lounge, we, sh- we should do that and just smash some beers. <laughs> I was in gold class um, just about five hours ago. Were you? What did you see today? Um, about two hours straight of Mark Ruffalo saying, they knew. What's this? In, in Dark Waters. Ah, uh, was it any good? It's fine. Yeah? Like, like six out of ten. It's fine. Okay. I know nothing about it. I saw a poster for it um, at the cinemas and that's about it. I know nothing about it. So, Mark Ruffalo's in it. Yeah. Just, think- picture, him, just picture him saying they knew for two hours. <laughs> there you go. Movie. Okay. I'll do that. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at wewatchedathing.com or wewatchedathing at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all under the handle at wewatchedathing. If you want to help support the show and get access to bonus episodes or make us watch something like Topher made me do this week, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wewatchedathing, and we'll catch you next week. Go watch a movie. Yeah, good movie though, Country Frogmen. Good movie. I liked it a lot. Um, I should rewatch it when I'm less.